Welcome to New Hope's teaching podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to 77977. Enjoy this week's lesson. What's your favorite conspiracy theory? This is a question when I'm backpacking with with a a group of friends. Uh, We're on the trail for hours and hours hiking up and down mountains. So you have all these incredible conversations. That's one of the questions I usually throw out. What's your favorite conspiracy theory? Ask that at your next uh, dinner party or gathering, and you can be sure to have some great conversation. Let me give you a couple. I did a little research here on like the top conspiracy theories in history just to kind of give you some ideas of what you might choose. Uh, moon landings are fake. That's that's one of them. Uh, 9-11 being an inside job. Uh, Princess Diana was murdered by the royal family and Prince Charles is a vampire. Yeah, maybe. Uh, JFK's assassination backed by the CIA or maybe the Russians or maybe the Russians and the CIA. I don't know. Uh, aliens. There's all different kind of alien conspiracy theories. One is they they built Stonehenge, which I think a picture will, will come up. Area 51, our government's hiding alien bodies and ships and all that. Or I found a conspiracy theory that's pretty widespread that uh, there's alien species on our planet and they're disguised as humans and they're ruling over us. Hmm. Uh, another one is that Elvis is alive or uh, John Lennon's alive or Kurt Cobain's alive or Tupac's alive. <laughs> Maybe they're all together like a super band or, or something. So that, there's those conspiracy theories. And then there's one that Paul McCartney, one of the Beatles, actually died in 1966. And to that point on, there's been an actor playing Paul McCartney. I don't know if you've heard that one. And then, uh, and then there's the Earth is flat. And does anybody believe that? I don't know. I, I guess. And, and if you do, then you're still welcome in New Hope. We, we, we have every, everyone's welcome. What's your favorite conspiracy theory? Mine probably has something to do with aliens. And I think it goes back to just my love of E.T. Who doesn't love E.T.? And I don't know if this falls under conspiracy theory, kind of, but I think all of you know I hope Bigfoot exists. And I, I just like, I don't know. I'm just always, my, my, my cousin Griffey, he's like six and we, we talk, you know, he lives in Madison and I'm always like, I'm looking for Bigfoot. He's like, Uncle John, Bigfoot doesn't exist. And I'm like, yes, he does. And that, I think that's why he calls me crazy, Uncle John. Or the Loch Ness Monster. I, all, I love it, right? If we believe in conspiracy theories are prone to that, that's normal, that's human. We have this capacity in our brains to uh, disbelieve certain things and believe other things. Uh, it's just wired into a psychologist tell us that we're psychologically prone to believe conspiracy theories if there's unmet emotional needs in our life. So maybe I need to talk to my counselor about Bigfoot. Um, but all conspiracy theories are a f- some, they're fueled by some sort of what has become known as fake news. And fake news isn't totally fake. There's a, a part, a kernel of truth in fake news enough to, 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 to build these conspiracy theories out. Uh, Ephesians, the letter that we've been in now for a number of weeks, and principally the passage we're going to look at today, which is a prayer, is meant to cut through all the fake news, cut through all the stuff that's kind of true but not really true and takes us into la-la land and I'm, I'm convinced the evil one is behind a lot of these things 
And as we pray this prayer that we'll read and learn about today, it cuts through all that stuff and, and anchors us to what is actually true. Uh, so we're in a series called uh, Resurrecting Church. I think it's the sixth week of our series. And Paul is giving us a, this letter as a wake-up call to churches to tell us what the church is meant to be. Uh, and, and it's never been more essential for the church to be what the church is meant to be. So it's a wake-up call. It's a story that we're meant to step into and live. Uh, last week, uh, we are in chapter 3. Pastor Mike gave a great message. Please go back and watch that if you didn't get a chance to. And we've been arguing, uh, following scholar Tim Gombas, that Ephesians is maybe apocalyptic literature. It's unveiling a mystery of what is happening in the world and this drama and how the church is part of it. And Paul talks a lot about that in, in the passage that Mike preached from last week, this mystery that's being unveiled. And Paul talked a lot in that passage about how the role of the church and the way kingdoms come is not the way we expect it. It doesn't use the same uh, power mechanisms that the world uses or the evil forces use because we're in this cosmic battle. And the way we're used to doing things and seeing things, the kingdom of God operates in a totally different way. Uh, Mike quoted Tim Gomez last week and said, Jesus uh, wins by losing. Uh, the, Jesus said the, the last shall be first, and, and we experience life when we experience death, and we're just like, what? And we really delved into that last week. And, and Paul, in the passage, the first part of chapter 2, gave two examples. One was Paul himself, who is writing this letter from prison, and we can't forget that. And Paul's like, I'm like the least of the apostles, and look what God's doing through me. I persecuted the church, all of that. And then the second example he gave was the church, and that includes New Hope and the idea that we're just a bunch of ragamuffins saved by grace, but God's going to use us to make the world right again. What? It's important that we grasp that because as we go into this prayer— and this, in the latter part of chapter three, Paul begins the prayer, and you're, you're about to hear it with three words, for this reason. So there's momentum coming from the message last week and the passage last week into what causes Paul to pray this. So it's important we keep what I just said in mind as we hear this prayer. And Chris is going to read the prayer for us. Take it away, Chris. Ephesians three fourteen through 21. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide long, high, and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. All right. How does, how does Paul choose to transition from the first part of his letter to the second? In week one, I talked about how Ephesians is really split, chapters one through three and four through six. And the first part is the story that we're part of and unveiling into the role of the church. And the second part is how we're living it out. This prayer is the hinge point. It holds the two parts together. 
And at the central part of this magnificent letter is a prayer. And there was another prayer we talked about, I think, in week two. There's two primary prayers in, in this book on how to be a church. And if we come away with nothing else from this series, let's come away with the idea that Paul desires the church to be a praying church. And that is one of my deepest desires from New Hope. If we become nothing else, let's be a church that prays. And so Paul anchors his letter in these two magnificent prayers and puts this prayer at the epicenter of his, of his volume that he's writing about how to be the church that God envisions us to be. So as I just said, he prefaces it with for this reason. So he's pointing back to what Mike talked about last week, the first part of chapter three, and hopefully you have your Bibles out at home. You can look back in there and, and see that. And I think he's also pulling from even previous chapters. He's pulling basically from everything we've talked about. And he says, for this reason, and it compels him to pray this prayer. So let's spend a little bit of time in this prayer, and then we'll talk about how the prayer is actualized in our life in our community. So follow along with me. Go back to the beginning of the prayer. You see, praise to the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. If you look in the Greek, you would see there is a wordplay there that you can't miss. The Greek word for father and family, which is really close in the English text, they're essentially the same words. And Paul's bringing out this connection that those of us who have looked to Jesus for life, we're family. I interviewed uh, Herman and Nike Green a few weeks ago, my pastor friends uh, ministering up in North Portland and got great response from that. And Herman's become a friend and a co-laborer in the gospel. And I'll text him or I'll call him. I called him the other day when, when he won the election for school board to, to congratulate him. And he literally answered the phone. He's like, what's up, family? He calls me family. He doesn't call me John. He calls me family. He gets it that what brings us together is way more important than what brings us apart. And, and we're trying to like embody that in, in our church. So I think also this line, Paul talks about that God, the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth derives his name, it's expansive. Paul's trying to expand our mind for what the kingdom of God is gonna look like. Oftentimes we make that a very narrow thing of people that just look like us, act like us, think like us are gonna be in the kingdom. And we see anything but that going all the way back to Abraham when God called Abraham to make him a great family and make a great nation to reach all the peoples of the earth. That's what the angels say in Luke 2 when they announce Jesus, that good news to all people. If we look forward to Revelation again and again, we're told John has this apocalyptic vision of what's coming. He said people from every language and nation and tribe are going to be gathered around the table. That's what Paul is doing. He's trying to expand out our vision of who is part of our family. And one of the shockers, and we see this in Jesus' teaching, that, that will happen when we enter the kingdom fully and we kind of look around and see what it's about, we're going to be shocked at who's there. I guarantee it. Because, as Paul's told us already, it's by grace we've been saved. So that, that sets the stage for the prayer. So he's praying to this father of this expansive family. And then verses 16 through 19, look down your text, they form kind of the heart of the prayer the nuts and bolts of the prayer of what Paul's actually praying. So he, he says in verse 16, out of God's glorious riches, we would be strengthened with power in our inner being. This is his first primary request. Paul prays that the church would, would go stronger through the power of the spirit that flows from the riches of God. I had this image as I was studying through it of like it. I think a picture will, will come up uh, from an old movie called Little Giants, but the picture of like a small skinny kid that's in this oversized football uniform playing middle linebacker in the NFL. <laughs> like he would get demolished. And I think in a way, Paul's looking at the churches in Asia Minor and saying, oh boy, they need to get stronger and they need the strength of the Lord, God, and 
empower them, make them stronger for this cosmic battle they're about to enter into. I think that's a little what's going on, and this is this is really the focus of Paul's prayer. Uh, he, he prays that we'd be stronger in our inner being, and then right after that, in verse 18, in our hearts. They're really the same statement. And in the ancient world, uh, when somebody says in your heart or in your inner being, they mean the seat of your mind and will and emotions, your operating center, everything that, that, that you choose to, like, I'm going to choose to feel that way, I'm going to choose to do this, uh, that's the heart, that's what Paul's talking about. And the idea is that Paul is bringing home is that he's praying that Jesus, as our king, would dwell in the epicenter of our lives and our heart, in our control center the place that, that commandeers our mind and our will and our emotions, that Jesus would sit there on the throne. And this goes to the idea that a lot of times in Western Christianity, we think of Jesus as our good buddy. He's just kind of along for the ride. as our pal. And Paul's like, no, he's not our buddy. Jesus is our king. And he's meant to rule our lives and he's meant to rule our churches. And this is what Paul is praying for these churches in Asia Minor and what he would certainly pray for New Hope. His second request is essentially the same request. He's, he's saying in a different way. In verse 18, Paul prays that we would have power that flows from God's love. So he, he, has, a, he has the triune God here in his prayer. I, I don't know if you saw that on first reading, that out of God's riches, we would be in power through the strength of the Holy Spirit rooted in the love of Jesus. It's a really beautiful prayer. But the heart of it is that we his, the church would be empowered, that we get stronger so that we would be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. That's the end of his prayer. And this goes back to the end of chapter one. Those words might sound familiar where Paul defines the church as the fullness of Jesus who fills everything in every way. You'll notice as you're reading through, you see two primary things pop out, power, and then you see a lot of talk about love. So let's talk about love. Um, this makes total sense because we're praying to God for empowerment, but we also know that God, who we're praying to for empowerment, is love. God, love is not one of God's attributes. It's who God is. So if we're looking to God to source our power, we're also at the same time asking for, for uh, an experience of God's love. Paul uses two different words to pray for this uh, experience of God's love. Uh, one word is grasp. And the other word is no. They're different words in, in the Greek, so they're, they're uh, appropriately translated with different words in the English. And they work together. Grasp means uh, literally to get it. It's like when somebody's teaching you a new thing, or you're studying something a new time, and you're wrestling with it, you don't understand, and you finally, I get it, I grasp it, I get it. And Paul's like, please let the churches know, get God's love. But he also says, may they know, this is a different Greek word, and it means experiential knowledge. Get it, grasp is like intellectual. Know is more of a heart knowledge. I can know about my wife, that's more of the grasp, or I can know my wife. I can experientially know who she is as a human and grow in relationship with her. Paul is praying both in this beautiful prayer, that we would know God's love, that we get it, and that we get it here as well, both and. And then he goes on and he says, you're not going to really get it though, because he has this beautiful description of the width and the length and the height and the depth of God's love. Four dimensions, we usually think in three dimensions. Paul's like, yeah, I want you to get it, but you're never going to be able to get it. We'll be experiencing God's love for the rest of eternity. We can never fully grasp it. But he says, if we grow in grasping and we grow in knowing it, we will be rooted and established. That's the prayer that he's praying over the church in God's love. 
and to be rooted and established in a world that we feel so unloved and so unanchored to love is such a beautiful request that in and of itself is empowering. When you meet someone who knows they're the beloved of God, who knows they are well-loved, there's a rootedness and establishment in that. And that's what Paul is praying for uh, in the church. Verse 20 and 21, he ends it with this great doxology. And that might be a weird word, a churchy word to some, uh, but the beginning, doxa, means glory. So doxology in Jewish background and in Christian background had three components generally. You named God, who you were giving glory to. You said something great about God, why he's glorious. And, and then finally, you talked about eternity, that this will go on for all of eternity. We, we see all three boxes checked in this doxology. Let's read it. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So let's break it down. God who is able to do immeasurably more. What's the greatest thing you could ever imagine God doing for you or for the church? God will top it. God can do more. That's essentially what Paul's saying. This word immeasurably means above and, and beyond. And Paul says, God's power is at work in you, church. Know that. That's so deeply comforting to me. And then Paul says, to him be the glory. This, this glory theme, maybe you've missed it, maybe you've caught on to it, but it's everywhere in Ephesians. Uh, we see it six times in the opening chapter. And then we're told in our passage today, we're empowered out of God's glorious riches. And Paul tells us now the entire story is laid out for God's glory. This word glory is used 199 times in the Hebrew scriptures. It's a really cool word. It means uh, to be weighty, to be heavy, to be of substance, to be of value and worth and wealth. And when, it's, when, it's, uh, when the word's attributed to God, that's what it means. So our word worship is really the word worth-ship. When we're worshiping God, we say, you're of substance, you're of great value, you're precious, that's what's happening. And this is what Paul is calling us to do. He's proclaiming that God above everyone and everything is worthy of worship. So then uh, it's really interesting, he says, to God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Again, another thing that you might've noticed, continually Paul is weaving together the church, which is the body of Christ and Jesus. 11 times. The church and Jesus are, are almost inseparable in Paul's mind. So this is a correction. The church is not a place we go. The church is a group of ragamuffins saved by grace, fueled by the spirit of God, rooted in the love of Jesus, sent out for the sake of the world. That's the church. And that's why when people see that operating, the church is being what the church should be, God is worthy of praise. So here, side note, we need to be very, very careful to take shots at the, not to take shots at the church and not to say I'm done with church. Because Paul would simply say this, if you're done with church, you're done with Jesus. Now, I know what you're thinking. I think I know what some of you are thinking. The local expressions of church. So let's think of capital C church as being what Paul's talking about and small C church being our local expressions, which are different everywhere and popping up and new hopes of local expression of the church. There's plenty of local expressions of church that have been abusive and done tons of harm and leaders attached to them that have done tons of harm. Absolutely. And some of you that have been impacted by those have every reason to be skeptical of the church. Absolutely. And anytime you see that foolishness, it needs to be confronted and brought into the light. But the way forward, and this is really what this whole series is about, is not to jettison the church. 
That's, that's essentially Paul saying, jettisoning Jesus. It's to enter into this ragamuffin gathering saved by grace and re-envision it and reform it and rebuild it to reflect what God is calling us to be. As we've said numerous times, there, there, there is no plan B. And if we're doing that, fueled by the grace of God for the goodness of the world, strengthened by the spirit, rooted in the love of Jesus, empowered by God the Father, we will absolutely change the world. And Paul said, we will do so throughout all generations forever and ever, or as Buzz Lightyear said, uh, to infinity and beyond, I think. And then he, Paul ends the prayer with amen. And maybe that's a churchy word to you. That word simply means, let it be. So Paul's given us this magisterial prayer flowing from everything that he shared so far, kind of at the center of the book as he begins to transition to application. And he says, let it be. And we're meant to say, amen, let it be. All right. Let's talk about what this means for our lives a little bit. I bet that you've missed the most important word in the whole passage. I'm guessing. And we could bicker on what the most important word might be. I'm being a little hyperbolic, but I bet you missed a very important word. And go all the way back up to verse 14, and it is the word kneel. Paul writes, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Kneel is the primary uh, activating verb at the beginning of this prayer, and it's put there very, very intentionally. For this reason, uh, kneeling in body is the very heart of what Paul is praying. It, it, it's a picture of it. Uh, our world in which we live, uh, that is largely ruled by the forces of evil, uh, we're in this cosmic battle that is, this is, we can see on full display everywhere. The way our world works when we get things done is we exert our own power through violence, through coercion, through oppression, through lots of money, through military, through like raw human strength. Only the strong survive, survival of the fittest. We hear these things, they're just woven into us. Paul desperately wants us to know, and Mike provocatively talked about this last week, and Paul continues talking about this, that God's way is different. Power is absolutely essential for the victory of the church, but the power is not our own. The power must come from God. Uh, I'll put it this way, power is discovered uh, on our knees. And so when we take this posture on our knees, and like even as you're watching me, I, I would Listen to your heart. Something's maybe happening within you, like John's on his knees and what's going on. It is a position of utter vulnerability, of helplessness, of submitting to the person that we're kneeling to. It, something happens even when you're doing it, and something happens in me right now that I'm feeling it and you're experiencing, and, and, and we must name that. And for Western American Christians, it's hard because our whole story as a nation, right, is overthrowing the king and no one makes me bow. <laughs> and if we bring that mentality into following Jesus, simply put, we won't be able to follow Jesus because Jesus is not our buddy. <laughs> Jesus is our king. And this is how we're meant to follow Jesus, that following Jesus comes on our knees in submission to him, in humility, that power truly is discovered on our knees. So let's talk about that. So let's, let's break that down a, a, a little bit. Uh, so one of, one, of my, one of my deep concerns is when I look out at the church and I see one of the ways the church is manifesting itself is co-opting the worldly way of power. We were operating out of fear and anxiety and even anger, like we've got to do it in our own strength. And we're pulling from the playbook of the world and pulling from the playbook of the evil forces of the world. To be really blunt, you see this in the political sphere. Now, I'm not saying followers of Jesus should not be politically engaged. I think we should be as good citizens, but we're also exiles and we exist out of that. And 
politics, whether you come from the left or you come from the right, it's always a power game. It's always a power game. Political entities and organizations, they bend the knee, but never to Jesus. And so when we think that our way forward is through political might or the power mechanisms of the world, it will absolutely pollute the church. True power comes from God and God alone, and it's discovered on our knees. We see this in the early Christians. They were not perfect at all, but they modeled a lot of really good things. And we know from studying them in the first century, in the first really three or four centuries, that they were under massive pressure, that the whole political system of Rome, the economic system, the social system, had to do with emperor worship, that the people in charge, the emperors, the kings, the leaders, expected to be deified and worshiped. And if you did not bow the knee to them, you, you cut off relationships with family and with friends. You had economic distress and you lose businesses and you lose homes and sometimes lose your life. And we see the Christians again and again and again refusing to bow the knee to Rome, refusing to bow the knee to Babylon, if you will, to use John's terms in Revelation, and bowing the knee to King Jesus at incredible cost because they knew and they were steadfast that that was the only way. I, uh, when I pray with, with my girls, uh, Eden and our, our girls, Eden and Juby every night, I almost always get on my knees. And part of it is like I'm trying to model to them. Um, and, and that's almost sometimes more important than what I'm praying for them to see their dad get on his knees. And it's, I'm trying to show them that that's our proper place. That's where true power is discovered. And that we can only, we can't look to our own human strength and power, but we got to look to God. And Paul says that. He says, now to him who is able, I'm not able, you're not able, the world mechanisms aren't able, to him who is able. We see this all over scripture. A couple of things as I was studying came to mind. The prophet Zechariah, I'm sure you spend tons of time reading the prophet Zechariah, but this is a great verse. He says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Isn't that great? And then, and then Psalm 27, this is a really, really special verse, and I'll tell you why in just a second. Uh, the psalmist says, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Sub in chariots and horses for whatever we do in our modern mindset to get things done. Uh, the psalmist is like, yep, don't trust in those things. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. When I started at New Hope six years ago, uh, it was a struggle fest. The church wasn't in a great place and I encountered a lot of unexpected challenges. It was, it was a dark time, it was a lonely time. It was a come to Jesus time, to be honest. And my natural mechanism as a human being, how I'm wired, is just to put my head down and do it in my own strength. That comes naturally to me, I don't have to try. That's of the devil, and that won't work. And I thought time and time again, even if I could turn the church around in my own strength, what kind of horrible church would that be? It would be built on the foundation of my brokenness, and I don't want anything to do with that. And I came to see that the only way forward from New Hope, and that continues to this day, is by turning our eyes to him who is able, not me, not any of our staff, not you, to him who is able. So I printed this off the computer one day. I was just at the end of myself, really, and put it up in my office at the old New Hope building, and it stayed there for years. Because when my natural trajectory took over, I looked up, I said, nope, not chariots, not horses, but the Lord. That power is discovered on my knees, and I've spent plenty of time on my knees praying for our church over the last six years. We have... Uh, 
We have this scarcity mindset. That's what psychologists are, are talking a lot about. I had a, a counselor once and I was small talking with her. And I was like, is there anything that like threads through like all the people you meet with? It's like a common issue. And she said, sure, uh, not having enough. And I was like, not having enough of what? She says, just fill in the blank. And I was like, oh my goodness. And then I look around and I see in my own heart and I see in other people's heart this, oh, I don't have enough and they're scared and they try to like engineer their own way. Remember not too long ago where everybody was buying massive amounts of toilet paper? <laughs> It was like, couldn't find toilet paper. And I have friends that have enough toilet paper for a small country today. And I'm not going to lie. We had an okay supply. We didn't do that thing and go out and buy a bunch. But one day I was sitting early in the pandemic looking at our supply and I felt fear grip my heart. <laughs> do, we, do we have enough toilet paper? We survived if you wanted to know that. Uh, this kind of question haunts us. And this prayer directly addresses it. Paul confronts it in this prayer. I would say it this way, that our God, who we look to, who is able, has plenty to give. Plenty. We don't need followers of Jesus' scarcity mindset. I'll just give you a couple examples. Prior to our passage today, uh, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, that God lavished us with the riches of his grace. Lavished. Uh, chapter 1, verse 18, the riches of God's glorious inheritance. Chapter 1, 19, God's incomparably great power for those of us who believe. Chapter 2, verse 7, in the coming ages, God will show the incomparable riches of his grace. Uh, 3, 8, Paul preaches the boundless riches of Jesus. Do you see a theme? And then just in our passage today, Paul preaches, again, the, the, uh, God, God strengthens us out of his glorious riches. Uh, verses 18 and 19, our minds cannot grasp the width, length, height, depth of Jesus' love. Paul's like, you can't even get it. How much love is coming out of you? You can't even grasp it. God, fill us with all the fullness of God, verse 19. And then this great doxology, God is able to do immeasurably more than ever we can ask or imagine. Eugene Peterson in his book, Practice Resurrection, has this great story of a couple in his church, uh, Fred and Cheryl, I think their, their names were. And they had two, two boys uh, naturally, and then they felt God was leading them to, to adopt. And so they, they adopted a, a young girl, Addie. Uh, from another country, and her parents had been killed in, in a traffic accident. She was orphaned. She was destitute. So that's kind of the background of the story. So they do all the stuff you do when you adopt from another country, and finally the, the, the awesome day came when, when Addie became their daughter, and they brought Addie home from this country, and, and they talked about the first supper they had. And, uh, and they told Eugene that they put out, you know, they're all sitting, they're two boys and Addie, and they're sitting around the table, and a huge plate of pork chops comes out. It's like, picture the scene, it's like a banquet feast and vegetables and a huge bowl of mashed potatoes and just more food Addie than Addie had ever seen in her life. And they said they watched Addie as her eyes got bigger and bigger, and they watched these two teenage boys just devour pork chop after pork chop, as only teenage boys can, and eat mashed potatoes and refill their plate. And they, they said it went from like all in one or two, they could tell it was fear on Addie's face. So as good parents tried to get to know their new daughter, they, they pulled her aside and they said, hey, how are you doing? And like, what's going on in you? You look scared. And as they were beginning to talk to her, they realized that that in Addie's life up to that point, not only did she go hungry most days, but whenever she did have food, when it ran out, it was going to be another couple of days before any food came. And she was feeling that scarcity thing in her heart. So the mom, Cheryl, said that she took Addie to the pantry and she opened the pantry and she said, look, look at how stocked we are. We got so much of this and this and this and this. Do you see it? Do you see all this there? And then come here. And she opened the refrigerator. She's like, look. Look at all this food and we got tons and tons. And then she took her out to the freezer and like, look at all these pork chops. We can make them right now. And there's ice cream and this and this and this. And she looked at her and she said, honey, you are never going to go hungry. And, and I see that in this prayer. 
followers of Jesus that I see, myself included, like, oh, no, oh, no, are we going to have enough? Our God has plenty to give, plenty to give. And he is the one that is able, and, and, and we discover the power on our knees, not through our own engineering, not the ways and the schemes of the world, which are the schemes of the evil one that are always end in destruction. So back to fake news and conspiracy theories. This prayer, as we pray it, cuts through those things, cuts through these conspiracy theories and wild, warped ideas of the evil one that we tend to believe about God. And, and others. when we pray this prayer, we pray away those things. We pray truth, the conspiracy theory and the fake news that we're only loved if we earn it. And that God has this limited amount of love. And no, we're saved by grace. Remember, God can never love us any more or less than he does right now in Jesus. It's not about our performance. You're loved, New Hope. This prayer exemplifies it as we pray it. It cuts through the fake news like, I don't have enough. God's going to run out. We're competing for, with his limited resources. What? God doesn't have limited resources. He has plenty to give. You're never going to go hungry, New Hope. And then finally, it cuts through this fake news of like, to bring kingdom come, we've got to do it through political world or military might or nation states or my brilliant ideas or whatever, coercion, oppression. No, no. The kingdom will come because the king reigns and the king is victorious and he is able and he invites us in his grace to be part of this story. We don't have to do it, New Hope. We're just invited to the party. We're reminded as we pray this prayer that, that power doesn't come through those means, that power is discovered on our knees. So I want to give us a chance to pray. So if you've got your, your uh, you, you'll have this come up on the screen, this prayer. And also uh, we've, we've, uh, we'll have little cards like we did the first time uh, that you can print out from online or, or if, you, if you come to New Hope, we'll have those. And it's another prayer. I hope you're still praying that other prayer. And I, I, read it, I wrote it in such a way that there's blanks that you can put your name, or you can put the name of people that you love. But if we don't know how to pray, we, we pray these prayers. These are God's prayers for the church and for one another. And I challenge you parents to pray them for your kids, grandparents, praying for your grandkids, praying for your spouses, praying for your girlfriend, boyfriend, schoolmates, people on your sports teams, people that you love. Praying for our church. Hannah, one of our pastors here, bitched me the other day that maybe people aren't even ready to pray wherever they're at in the spiritual journey. Maybe just getting on their knees is the prayer. And that's a beautiful thought. So maybe you just need to get on your knees a few times this week. But I want to challenge you to pray this prayer a few times this week and pray it on your knees. So at home, like maybe a name will come up. Maybe it's your name that you want to insert into this prayer. But I'm going to pray this prayer, and I'm going to put new hope in there because I'm going to pray this for our church because I deeply desire it for our church. So let's conclude with this prayer. I pray that out of his glorious riches, uh, he may strengthen new hope with power through his spirit in new hope's inner being so that Christ may dwell in new hope's heart through faith. And I pray that new hope being rooted and established in love may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Jesus. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that new hope may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen, let it be.